Thanks, you can have a seat. It's great to be together again. Um, and we hope that you've been able to worship God with your lives this week. It's not just about Sunday morning and singing, so it's great if singing's not your thing. Worship is a lot more than that. So I hope that in every season and situation that we're in, that we can worship God um, in different ways. Um, Janae and Adrian will read the call to worship now. Psalm 143. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies, and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. Let's sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing.
that's hard to sing, but the next song kind of speaks to how we don't have to be the ones conjuring up that strength, but it's Christ in us.
may be seated. Good morning. Let's go now into a time of prayer. Our God, we come before you this morning with a number of things on our hearts. But first of all, we want to spend a moment blessing you for the good news that is before us in all of the forms that that takes. The good news that things around us are feeling safe enough to begin opening that we can start discussing events not even in the coming week, but events coming a couple weeks out. That is something that seems like such a small thing, but after these last 18, 20 months, it seems so big now. And God, we want to thank you so much for the healing that you have brought to our land, and we want to continue to pray that that healing continues as well. But Lord, we thank you. And God, we want to bring all of the people that are involved in our school system before you. We want to bring the teachers, we want to bring the TAs, we want to bring the assistants, we want to bring the administrators, we want to bring the custodians, we want to bring everybody that is involved in working to raise that next generation, to educate that next generation before you today. Lord, their work matters so very much. And so we bring them before you and we pray your blessing on them. We pray your strength for them and that this year that is to come will be a wonderful year that they remember as one of the best. Lord, as they begin prepping for the next few weeks, God, we just pray that they will be able to see you bright and clear in all that they do. Lord, this we bring before you. And God, we want to bring before you also the coming board meeting this Tuesday. I'm very excited to begin that path forward, to begin looking at what the fall is and to continue looking at the fall is and all that it can be. And so I pray that you, as we have that meeting that you will be there very clearly, leading us to how it is that we are to build your kingdom here in McGregor. Lord, all of these things we bring before you today, but most of all, we thank you. In your name we pray, amen. Scripture reading is found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 14. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not commit adultery. Yep, today is going to get a little awkward. It's something that needs to be talked about all the same. Because today we come to the seventh commandment, as we just heard read. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And to begin talking about this commandment and why it has a place on this list, like we have done for the six commands before it, and what this means for what it is that we as Christians are to be for, and also how it is that we are to live our lives. Because when you know it, this one has very clear implications to everyone, be you married or not. We first need to talk a lot about what marriage is. Because if you don't know what marriage is, then talking about adultery, you can't really do it in a way that makes clear sense. And so to do that, uh, we're going to have to look at what marriage is, both through the eyes of what we think it is today, and then through the very different eyes, the very different perspective of what marriage was when this commandment was written, what marriage is in the Old Testament. Because marriage, as I said, is quite a different thing than compared to now. And I say that because I'm pretty sure that no one is going to disagree with me when I say that we think of marriage today as some version of the following. Marriage is about love. It is a commitment between two individual people. That word individual is an important one in describing marriage today. And the purpose of marriage is something like, it's a way of telling your significant other that you care for them and you love them so very much that you are willing to be with them until the day they die to get those tax savings and have kids. You know, it's about love and about the two individuals coming together. That is kind of what I would say marriage is in the modern world as we look at it today. There's going to be some variations that we'll all throw in there, but 
It's some version of that in our culture today. But this isn't really the understanding of marriage that the people of the Old Testament would have been working with. Not, not at all. Because in the days of Moses, while undoubtedly individual boys and girls still fell in love and they still got Twitter pated when they saw one another, that they are human beings after all the same as us, they didn't, that didn't mean when you had those feelings for someone, that didn't mean that marriage was necessarily on the table for you. Because in those days, love and individual concerns, they weren't, they weren't the primary reasons for getting married. In fact, the primary reason for getting married back in those days is something that we probably can all gather from reading our Bibles, but it's family. Family is why people got married in the days of the Bible, and for most of human history as well. And when I say this, that family is why these people got married, what I'm trying to say is something like this. Family is why you got married, because marriage is an absolutely outstanding way of tying two families together. Again, family is why you got married, because marriage is an outstanding way of tying two families together. And this, this is true for reasons that still very much so hold water today. When you get married, your families, more likely than not, are gonna be spending a lot more time around each other than they ever did before. There are festivals and there are holidays to observe. There are family events that bring people together and if kids are in the place and kids are in the picture, then there's a certain amount of, of doting that needs to happen as well. Marriages tie families together. They always have and they always will. But in the Old Testament, it's, it's actually even more than just that. For then, in the tying of families together, you were also tying different aspects of family life together as well. You see, back then, typically it was cousins that would marry cousins. We couldn't really travel outside of towns, so eventually in small towns, everybody becomes cousins to one another. And also back then, typically sons carried on in what their fathers were doing, which functionally meant that farmers would marry other farmers. And then you would end up with bigger farms. Craftsmen would marry other craftsmen and you would end up with bigger businesses as a result. The assets tied together. Through marriage, these, everything got linked. Livelihoods were tied together, often for generations. And this still happens, sure, but then, then it was a given in a way that now it is more of an irregularity. And so I hope that you can see that in the times of the Old Testament, marriage was a very big deal in terms of the community, which is also why it typically was not left up to the individuals involved to arrange marriage for themselves. Fathers had to negotiate, deals had to be discussed and struck, and you, you can see this happening in scripture on a number of different occasions. Think Samson when he had eyes for that Philistine girl in Judges 14. Their families sat down and they worked out some sort of a union together because there was a lot on the line. Then marriage, far from being about a commitment simply between two individual lovers that doesn't really concern itself about the outside world, which I'd argue largely is what marriages are today, then marriages were instead contracts between families. And as such, the family certainly had their say in how that was gonna go. And while this view of marriage is likely very weird to us today, this view from the past where those outside of the union have a lot of say in how marriages are formed and even how they operate. To the Old Testament folk, it makes perfect sense that this would be the way that things worked. And the reason why is because they saw the role of marriage in society in a very, very different way than we do today. Because us today, I think we think of society and how it works as some version of the following. A society is made up of individual people like you, I'm me, you and me. Individuals who work for themselves, who make deals for themselves, who decide who to date and marry for themselves. Individuals that have their own agency and their own rights and their own freedoms. In our culture, this is how we think 
of the world, that the individual is the basic building block from which all civilization comes, that the individual and what it is that we do with our lives is what everything is built up from. But to the people of the Old Testament, the individual isn't the basic building block of society at all. It never was. After all, individuals can work their entire lives and in the grand scheme of civilization building not really do all that much. And they can't really produce children on their own, so that's just the end of it. At most, what you end up with in the Old Testament eyes when you look at that is you end with one generation of one person's worth of work that is not very much in the grand scheme of things. No, to the people of the Old Testament, the basic building block of society was a marriage. It was a marriage because, in their eyes, it's a marriage that produces the next generation to build upon what it is that you have done. It was a marriage that tied families together, bringing in more hands to help share the loads of what you are trying to build. And as such, it was the marriage that was seen as the foundation of which all of communities, all of civilization, all of what mankind has built is based. It's that marriage that is the foundation. And this is very much so in the understanding of society that scripture has as well. Think of Genesis 1 for a moment. Who is made in the image of God, humanity, male and female together, we are made in the image of God. And then immediately after the command is go forth and multiply and God says that it is good. Then Genesis 2, when we read that Eve was created, God blessed the people that he had just made by saying that the two will become as if one separate from their families. In both of these passages, we see the understanding that baked into creation itself is the understanding that it is the dedicated relationship between a couple, a marriage, that forms the basis of how human beings and what it is we build works because that is how we can guarantee the future comes. Meaning that in the eyes of the Old Testament, it is from this relationship, the marriage relationship that is all civilization is built upon. And this isn't saying anything negative about people that chose to be single. Because remember, Jesus himself is a single person, so anything that's good enough for God himself is a very great way of living your life. But instead, just that this is how marriages were understood to be at that time, as foundational to society itself. So, of course, you would want the help of your families putting together and making sure that your marriage turned out because the stakes were really high if it didn't. Because as I suspect you've noticed, when you remember that we're now about 10 minutes into this and we are supposed to be talking about adultery and finally we're gonna get there, this difference in the way that marriage is understood, it really changes and it really affects what adultery is. Because today our understanding of marriage as being primarily between individual peoples for the purpose of love and you just mind your own business, thank you very much, people outside of that bond, means that adultery is understood in that way as well, as primarily impacting the individuals who are involved directly in the marriage. It is viewed as a betrayal of the marriage vow, as an act that tears down the spouses involved. It makes a victim of the person in your life that you are supposed to love more than any other, and so it is raw and it is hurtful in every sense of the word. And add on to that, adultery is very likely more painful today to the spouses involved than it ever has been throughout the entirety of human history. Since now we have a choice in our relationships, we, we also have to deal with what ifs that never would have come up in the past. What if I never said I would marry them? What if this is somehow my fault that this happened? What if I did this? What if, what if, what if? You can know it isn't you. You can know that this is entirely the other person. You can know that. And yet it's still enough that 
dripping from the faucet in your mind to drive you insane. But while the fallout does impact friends and family, for the most part, the pain is contained within what is left of the relationship when the dust settles. But for the Old Testament people, while the couple directly involved was likely spared some amount of self-antagonism because they didn't really have a say in the whole thing to begin with, remember that it is a marriage that ties the community together. It is a marriage that is the basis, the foundation of everything. Break that foundation and everything comes tumbling down. The families tied together by the marriage are ripped apart. Assets are forcibly divided. Businesses stripped apart from one another. Farms divided. And worst of all, there is that keen and inescapable understanding that you, as the person who committed that sin, did something to wound one of the foundations that God built into the fabric of creation itself. The two that became one are suddenly and unnaturally split apart again and everything falls apart. Both then and now, the effects of adultery are terrible. The difference being that while now the devastation is concentrated on the marriage itself, on the couple in it, then the damage is much, much more broad. Either way, everyone comes out the worse for it. So why are Christians, why as Christians should we not commit adultery? Well, while we live in a different world that the Old Testament people lived in, adultery still has a way of hurting the people we love in a way unlike anything else. It, it has a way of tearing families apart, stomping communities into the ground and grinding what it is that we have put our sweat and toil into building, it grinds it into dust. And also adultery takes a look at the good world that God made and proceeds to flip the tables and upend it all. Why should you not commit adultery? Well, because save murder, there is nothing so singly able to tear everything apart than that. So, there you have it. As Christians, we shouldn't be adulterers, so don't do that. I guess that's kind of the takeaway, but I suspect that's the obvious point. But if I were to try to build on what it is that we have just learned and use that to say what it means that we Christians should be for, I think the takeaway would be a bit less obvious than just don't commit adultery. Well, one of the points would be pretty obvious still. The second would be a bit less so. So first, the obvious point. If we as Christians are to be against adultery, then that has to mean that we as Christians should be for marriage. Again, that is not saying that everyone needs to go out and get married. Jesus didn't, so you don't need to either. That worked out great for him. It's more just that if you are married. Jesus wants you to know that you need to be for working to make that marriage work. And I say that because this point is taken right from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. If we are to be against adultery, then we should think of it like how Jesus says in Matthew 6, we should think of divorce. That is, if we commit ourselves to work on our marriages instead of just thinking about how to end them, the likelihood is that we will go a long way to dropping the likelihoods that adultery will happen in the first place. By no means will this mean that 100% of the time it will never happen. Individuals still make terrible decisions all the time. But instead, just if you are proactive about fending off the problems that lead to adultery, that will up the chances of that not happening. So prioritize your marriages. We need to spend time talking state of the union with our significant other. How was your day? What are your needs? Because, and I swear this is true, people's needs actually change 
quite a bit over time. Would you believe it? A 22-year-old me had vastly different things that he needed out of his marriage than the 35-year-old stud standing before you today. More surprisingly to me, actually, is, is that that turns out to be the same thing with my wife as well. Who would have figured people change over time? Well, hopefully both of us would have figured that because we've spent time talking about it. We read in our Bibles that God places a rather high importance on the marriage relationship. We read that it is so important that it is considered one of the building blocks of the world itself, baked into how things are. And yet we often have trouble treating our marriage with the same amount of care as something like watching TV for three hours of the day when you get home from work deserves. No judgment on you if that's who you are, if that's what you feel you need to get by, but if that's what you feel you need to get by, maybe you should start plotting the path to getting a different job because that's how you make strangers out of your family. And if you're strangers with your family, it's always a lot easier to make decisions that you wouldn't feel bad making with a stranger exactly like that. Also, you need to get to know yourself too as your marriage goes on. That is a part of being in a healthy marriage and a part that most of us ignore. For a lot of men, and here I'm speaking about men as I am one, all too often we define our idea of what it means to be a man based upon some early 20-something version of ourselves when we could run 10 miles without getting winded and could get any girl we wanted. Then we get older and we suddenly can't run that 10 miles part anymore and we lose that feeling that we are manly and then we try to get it back through the other things we, for some reason, even though we are much older, still think mean to be manly. A lot of women have some version of the same thing as well. Unless you come to terms with the fact that it is okay to age, it is okay to not be 20 anymore, and that you can be just as much a man at any point in your life as you were then, even more so because you're wiser than you were. You know more things than you did. Refusing to acknowledge that there is a new you, that has a way of ending in broken marriages. So keep that in mind as well. Also the problems that are in your life and in your marriage. They never start off as the biggest things ever. They start off as little individual thistles and then they grow and then they grow and then they grow. It's easier to pick them when they're little individual thistles than when they're this high and their roots run deep. I wanna say I came up with that metaphor myself, but my uncle passed that one on to me, that wisdom on to me, and so I pass it on to you. So if you choose to be married, then know this, as Christians, you are called to work on that marriage. So treat it with priority. Set aside time to talk. Set aside time to play. Set aside time to watch TV and just veg out, but then also, Make sure to set aside time when you get out of the house, preferably someplace more than a half hour away where you need to drive there together and then keep the radio off. Just work at it. That might not stop adultery from happening again. Individuals are fully free to make bad decisions, but it'll go an awful long way to addressing it. And that's the first step. That's the first takeaway, though. And then here is the second one. And it is the one that affects all of us, be we married or not. For while marriages may no longer in our community be seen as the fundamental building blocks that they once were, as Christians, I think we still need to work to treat them in that way, even if they aren't ours. This isn't saying that you should go out and insert yourself into someone else's marriage to make sure it's going well. That is definitely not going to help anything. But instead, think of all the things that you could do to help other people's marriages thrive. 
Do you know how hard it is to get out when you have kids that can't take care of themselves? Before the pandemic, it was pretty hard. Now it is a lot harder still. If you are someone who likes to babysit and you have a history with it to boot, volunteer on that front. It's a breath of fresh air, even if you were never actually taken up on it. Or do you have any employees that are married? There is an understanding that the time the employee has on the clock is company time, and so if it's spent on anything personal, then that is the worst of sins. But if they work full-time for you, eight hours a day for five days a week, I ask you, how much time does that actually leave for them to spend with their family? Because they need to commute home, and they need to sleep a full night, and they have to get groceries and do other errands. They absolutely need to cook those foods so they can eat it, and they need time to unwind because otherwise they will go absolutely crazy. They need to clean the house, and maybe they have kids they need to spend time with as well. And now that all is said and done, how much time do you actually think that leaves for them to spend on their marriage? But you can make that easier on them. Maybe that takes the form of being okay if they take off a little early from time to time. Probably more likely what this means is how it impacts their vacation, a policy that actually insists that they take their vacation times because in North America, most people use, oh, I think the last time I read a thing on this, it was like maybe half of the vacation time they were allotted, maybe insisting they use the whole amount. That could go an awfully long way as well. And it's going to benefit you too, because nothing like adultery or a broken marriage to tank productivity. Or do you have friends or siblings or children who are married? Let them know that you are willing to talk about it, about their marriage. We have this idea that marriage is the couple and their problem, and they can deal with it on their own. But the thing is that the road to adultery is paved with a thousand little stepping stones, each being of the sort of thing that you really don't want to tell your spouse. But to tell a friend, or a sibling if you have that relationship, or your parent, depending on who you are, that, that's doable for most people. Anything so that the people involved don't feel like they are on their own. So be open to having those conversations and let the other person know that you are open to having them as well. It'll be up to them whether or not they actually do that, but to know that that's there, that is huge. Finally, if you are not married and there is someone you are thinking about making that leap with, then know if you do the legwork now, that'll pay dividends in the future. The little thistles that we talked about, pluck those now, and you won't need to deal with the massive trees they become later. Spend time with them around your friends and family so that they can get a good feeling as well and they can seriously weigh in on the opinion. It may hurt to hear some things that are a bit too honest, but it hurts a whole lot less than some very terrible things happening after the fact. Also, premarital counseling, super valuable. Even if you don't remember a word of it yourself, that it creates the idea that you can talk to others openly and frankly about your marriage, that goes a long way. To be against adultery means for all of us that you need to care that marriages succeed. And that goes for whether you are in a marriage or not. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall not commit adultery. Why is that the case? Because it hurts us, our families, our communities, and it flies in the face of the good world that our God made and said was good. So, as believers who are against adultery, I call us to be for marriages. This is not to say that you need to get married, but instead, if you are married, work on it. And if you are not, help the people who are in them the best that you can. If we do that, we will be addressing this scourge head on.
Amen. The song we're going to do is titled The Blood of Jesus. is the only one. And so for our benediction, we turn to the book of Romans. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in your faith, so that in the power of the Holy Spirit you may be rich in hope. Go forth from here and serve our God. 